I once had a professor who was an incredibly brilliant person. He had two children who were also incredibly brilliant, at least naturally as brilliant as he was. Now, they were homeschooled, and I remember sitting with them all for lunch and listening to the children. I, I couldn't believe what they were reading at the age that they were reading it at. I couldn't believe the eloquence with which they spoke to me as an adult. Now, I'm going to say something to you, and I beg your patience. I beg your forgiveness. Be with me in this and don't be offended. Up until that point in my life, I tended to believe that if you were homeschooled, it meant that you were socially backward. That was my experience after all. I knew kids from the ballpark. I knew kids at the playground. I knew kids in my church who had been homeschooled, and they were socialized by adults, and therefore they didn't catch all my references or my friends' references. They seemed to be interested in things that most school kids my age were not interested in. And so as they wandered off to go do their studies, I looked to my professor and quite openly and honestly asked him the question, your kids are great. But are you worried that they're going to be socialized by other kids? That was my kind way of saying, are you worried they're going to be a bit backward socially? He looked at me with love and sincerity in his eyes, and he said, no, absolutely not. I was curious. I wasn't there to pass judgment. I just wanted to learn from a person who had taught me so much in school. So I was curious. And I asked, well, well, why not? And he said, because, Jared, it is my job to raise adults, not children. So why would I expect the task of raising adults, or why would I give that job to other children. They don't know how to be adults either. They're going to spend the majority of their life not as a kid socialized, so-called by school and MTV, but they're going to be socialized by adults to live in an adult world, to make adult decisions. So why would I want a snot-nosed kid teaching them what it means to be an adult? Fair enough. I learned my lesson. Yeah, but it occurs to me that it's something that we do, isn't it? We make judgments about other people. We, in fact, make judgments about what humanity is as a whole. And what's more, it occurs to me that oftentimes we project identities, not just on individuals, though we do that, we also project an entire identity on an entire species called the human. Isn't it true, after all, if you told a kid over and over and over the course of their educational upbringing, you're bad at math, it's likely that maybe they won't perform so well in math. We project 
And people tend to live up to the projections that we put upon them. And this is no less true of individuals or humans as a species. The entirety of Western thought is built on the idea of what we project onto the human species, the human animal. What is a human being? Well, some people have theorized that the human being is homo economicus, the animal of economy, the animal of exchange, the animal of give and take, the animal of markets. If you happen to be alive during the 1992 general election cycle, you'll no doubt remember that Bill Clinton quite surprisingly overcame George H.W. Bush. But more than that, you might remember, especially for you political files, is that the right word? Well, for those of you who love the game of politics, you might very well remember a character from Cajun country. Bald head, glasses, James Carville. He was the architect behind Bill Clinton's entire campaign, and he was noted with stating not only to the campaign, but also to the wider world about the approach of the campaign. And he's been quoted often for saying this, it's the economy. It's the economy. Let's try this one more time. I'll stick, I'll stick on the point. It's the economy. I'm like still really swinging and missing on this one with you all. I think you know it because it's a very popular thing to say because of James Carville. The idea is that innate in us is the animal kind of quality that would allow us to be about exchange. And therefore, for Carville's approach, whichever way the economy goes, so goes the voter because that's who you are. Other more erudite thinkers said the human is a different kind of animal. The human is the homo faber. This is associated with Marxist thought and Adam Smith's thought and Lazi Fair thought. A lot of the early Western economic thought was built into this, and it says this, humans are the animal that make things. We have opposable thumbs. We can build for sure. So can monkeys and so can other animals, but, but we're interested in making our own world. We can build with our mind and our bodies worlds to inhabit. Very recently, my father-in-law sent me a message. Uh, greatly concerned was the tone of the message. It was about chat GPT. Have you seen this? This is the, the new conversation piece in the popular mythos about artificial intelligence. You see, up until it seems like now, artificial intelligence was really good at doing things like computation. But it seems like maybe we've gotten to a point where artificial intelligence can make worlds, can do the kinds of things that the human animal can do imaginatively. 
I once sat in a fundraiser for an organization that combats human trafficking, and they were very excited about a bot feature on the computer that could basically ensnare possible and would-be human traffickers. You see, a bot would come on whenever someone was trying to hire or solicit sex from a minor, and it would trick the person into actually uh, signing the dotted line, as it were, on a transaction and get this person in trouble with the law. Now, most of us heard this and thought, well, that is extraordinary. But he showed me this very popular video that's going around. It's got Jordan Peterson, who's a former psychology professor from the University of Toronto. He's popular in certain circles, politically and philosophically. Uh, and he's one who is looking at this chat, AI, and seeing that he could put in the topic, psychology, maybe a, a more minor topic within it and some keywords, and it would produce a research paper. And Jordan Peterson goes, oh my gosh, this is producing papers at a graduate level quality. It's got the imagination of humanity. Well, now on that side of things, we shudder, don't we? On that side of AI, we shudder. Humans are the homo favor that might be being passed. We also go back to something a little bit more primary when we tell humans what they are and project meaning onto them. Who of us hasn't heard of humans as the homo sapiens? Or more properly, the homo sapiens sapiens. The human animal is the rational animal or the thinking animal. Homo sapiens sapiens means that the human is the animal that can think about the fact that it's thinking. My wife and I have been watching this television program recently called Alone on the History Channel. Have you all seen Alone? They drop 10 people off somewhere in British Columbia. They're usually survival experts. They have 10 things. They have no one with them. The 10 things are the only things they can use to live. They don't have cameramen, but they have cameras and they're taught how to set them up. And whoever thrives or survives the longest wins. Through the course of each season, you see each contestant getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as their beards get longer and longer and longer, as their palates get more open to things that go creepy and crawly on the ground. And over time, they stare at the camera because there's no conversation partner. And they begin to wax poetic and wax philosophical about the nature of humanity. And almost always, you start to hear them get down into these concepts of, well, there's not much that separates me from the landscape except for I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about how hard this is. I'm thinking about my thinking. I'm thinking about how this is driving me insane. What we say about individuals dictates how we will treat them and maybe dictates how they'll behave. But what we say about humanity matters too. It wasn't 
just any old person. It was Thomas Hobbes who said that human is the war of all against all. We've been telling ourselves a story that we are just brutes who will just take from each other if we're not kept in check. And I wonder, has that done more to tell us how to be rather than simply describe who we are? Well, we ask this question because we're in church, and I think that we all have a sense about who we are as an animal creature. And so we ask the question, why religion? Because whatever we are, whatever kind of animal we are, we appear to be a religious one, a cultic one, a ritualistic one. That's the shape of our series, after all. The shape of it is, why religion? And why do we need it? Earlier on, we talked about the nature of religion being about binding back to a source or uh, binding us back to a purpose. When we thought about that in weeks, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the notion of spirituality and religion were the same. They are practices and cultures and communities and habits that bind us to a source of life and a sense of purpose. So when we get right down to the milk and the coconut, as my preacher used to always say, what is humanity according to Christian thought and theology? Well, there's one such thinker, a Russian emigrate of France named Alexander Schmemann, who said that the human is the homo adorans, the animal that adores. The human is the animal that worships. And lest we not forget that great philosopher James K.A. Smith has written very recently an entire book called You Are What You Love. Would you just say that with me as a corporate reminder? You are what you love. There was once a doctor in a small town, and this doctor was much beloved. He was committed to the Hippocratic Oath and caring for all, and he didn't do it for any money. He was kind of a general physician, and he would do the best he could. There were many nights when he would have to say good, good night to his family at the end of supper. He'd put down his cup of water, grab that beautiful old medical satchel, run out the door so he could take care of somebody who was sick. There were moments when he was on the phone giving a mom advice about what to give her child as his son tugged at his pant leg. There were times in the morning when he had to get up and cancel his golf outing just because somebody had need. And as he was driving down the laneway and into town, he looked over and saw his son in the yard with a ball and a glove trying to play catch by himself. You ever try to play catch by yourself? It's no fun. You just throw the ball up in the air. The boy was just waiting for his dad to come back home. Well, that old doctor, he died one day. He left his mark. He left an incredible mark on that community. And at the church where they had his memorial service, people got up, tons of people got up to speak to how he would 
take them on as patients without taking their money because he didn't do it for the money and they had needs. Sometimes he'd even write checks from his own personal bank account to help out somebody who was struggling. Oh, he helped and he studied and he got the help for people. Meanwhile, as everyone told their great stories about this great man who did so many great things for great amounts of people, his son sat in that front pew, grown now, the children on his left and right, his own children, his eyes darting back and forth, left and right, wishing his dad was there to play catch with him. You are what you love. James Smith also says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect. Now, that's what I got so passionate about last week. The reduction of religion into my truth that I can possess, something that I could hold on to, truth that belongs to me, you know? doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to supply the deepest new idea into your mind. He is after nothing less than your words, loves, and longings. Friends, the human animal is the animal that worships So what is religious practice for? What is all the religion that we do for? What is the spirituality that we practice about? May we suggest this morning that it shapes our loves, that it steeps our loves deep into the hot waters of our attention. It tells you where to look and focus your energies. It tells you where to take your identity from. This morning we read from Psalm 121, which is the second psalm in a list of psalms called the Psalm of Ascents. The psalms are the great hymn book of the Hebrew people of God. And they have different sections. And this section, the Psalm of Ascents, is adorned with beautiful poetic language, about often about uh, something a little bit more triumphal sound. This is the second one. And these psalms of ascents, we're not exactly sure where they took their origin. Some people suggest that maybe it's the corporate uh, writing of, of memories gone by, or maybe it's the people of God who are in exile thinking about that homeland that they that they long for, a longing for their home. Where in the center of home is a hill, and on that hill is a building, and on inside that building is where God meets you. Maybe that homing, home, home, the longing for home is all about your ability to find sacrifice before God, to hear the teaching of God, and to be with your brothers and sisters who are just like you in the sense that they have been saved and released from exile by this one God. What we do know is that they become the songbook of pilgrimage. 
that as the people would corporately go up to the Mount of Jerusalem, they would sing these songs together. I want you to analyze the directions of this psalm. I lift my eyes into the hills. It's a very famous phrase. We say this a lot in funerals. I lift my eyes up to the hills. There is the upward-looking direction. From where does my help come? There is the downward response. There is this eros here of, of giving attention and receiving help, of giving love and receiving transformation. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And the rest of the short psalm is really a poetic expression of the fact that no matter where you are, no matter what you go through, God will wrap you up in God's love. That no matter what tragedy and difficulty you have, God will hold on to you. And there we have the horizontal, the doctrinal, the dogmatic. These are fancy words for the things that we teach, the things that we believe, the things that we say to each other. We look upward, receive our help, and we speak about the truth. Friends, you are what you love. You're a worshiping animal. You will love something. And you will be bound to it. The psalmist in Psalm 121 tells you to look with your heart and mind ever toward your Redeemer. And let your identity come from your Redeemer and be wrapped <clears throat> in the divine embrace. And this is a beautiful thing. And lest you, but lest you forget, this isn't just about you as an individual. Yes, <clears throat> you as an individual will account for your life before God. You have only your life to live. You only have your time to give. And what you've done to yourself and to other people, you will stand account for. You already are standing account. It's already happening. The shape of our faith is a communal one. This is about the people walking together, pilgrimaging up the hill, which because of our beliefs, this isn't going on tour to see a lovely setting. This is a pilgrimage of the heart a divine encounter with every step, being made new and renewed. God is in the business of making a new people. You know, I was in football <clears throat> in high school. I played football. We weren't very good. The best year we had, we went one and eight. I was on that team. And I can tell you this. It was pretty demoralizing losing that much. Getting made fun of a lot in the hallways. Painful physically. But I remember Hell Week well. Do you remember Hell Week? Usually, at least where I'm from, you practice twice a day in the hot, hot sun. I can actually feel the lactic acid in my muscles starting to form as I think about it. 
At the end of every practice, our coach made us run these things called man makers. You would do 15 burpees and then you would sprint 150 yards and then you do 15 burpees and then you would sprint up a very large hill and then you come back down and then you would do 15 burpees and then you would sprint 150 yards and then you would do another 15 burpees. And that was one man maker. And we had to conclude every practice with man makers. Here's the thing, win or lose, those brothers that I lined up on the line of scrimmage with, the ones who wore the jersey, the same jersey I wore every game day, we went through that together. And it made us a people together. It made us a team. Although if I'm truthful, I think the day I finally learned that we were a team, that we were special together, was when the entire team between practices and Hell Week almost put Old Country Town, Old Country Buffet out of business. We went there and were asked to leave. Something about looking each other in the eye around the table, realizing you've been made What's been, you've been practicing has been making you together for something greater than yourself. And that is religion.